This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. There seemed to be some confusion this week whether we were going to discuss uh, the chapter on ancestors or the chapter simplicity in uh, Kyogen's book. Uh, at least I got confused. So I'm going to uh, try to talk about both of them, uh, weave together some of the points in each chapter. And it may be the overarching theme, it has to do with metaphors and how we use them and how we can get entangled by them. Um, some of you may have seen the obituary this morning in the Times for the cartoonist uh, Edward Corrin used to uh, draw wonderful cartoons for the New Yorker, uh, often seemingly centered around some uh, somewhat frumpy, middle-aged, bearded, wild-haired, academic-looking character, sort of the kind of person you see on the Upper West Side all the time. Uh, and there was a description of a uh, particular cartoon that I'll read here. And it was called The Landscape of Metaphors. And it depicted a bearded, balding academic, much like himself, carrying a book through a pastoral setting studded with signs. On a tree was Metaphor for growth and change. Beside a birth, excuse me, beside a bird. Metaphor for lyricism. And on a trail leading to the distant hills. Metaphor for aspiration. Now we can uh, Look at that cartoon and laugh at it a number of different ways as if uh, what it's depicting is somebody who's got their head so buried in the books that they can only see nature in terms of metaphors, in terms of ideas that they're carrying around with them. And often we encounter Things like this in Zen where we're told we're supposed to strip away all these metaphors and all these co concepts and cognitive categories and see reality directly. And I always thought it was sort of ironic and somewhat paradoxical that there are two very distinct classes of people who 
think that they're seeing reality directly or are preoccupied with that idea. And one of those are scientists, you know, so old logical positivist philosophers who want to get rid of all metaphors and just have the facts, just perceive things as they are. Get rid of all the complications that language imposes on reality and just get down to the pure data. Very scientific worldview, right? But on the other hand, the people who talk about seeing reality directly are mystics. And they think that when you strip away all the concepts and metaphors, you don't have the facts, but you have what? Some kind of dazzling encounter with life as it is, right? Personally, I think both groups are in the grip of a fantasy uh, called seeing reality directly. And it's as if, you know, in a Wittgensteinian sense, we're all in the midst of this language game. And one of the games we play is imagining that we can step out of the game and see the world free of language. Uh, but that's just another move in the, in the game where we're playing. So let me read a little bit of Kyogen in that spirit, starting with what he says about our ancestors. And he talks about his teacher asking the question, who transmitted to Shakyamuni Buddha? When we chant the lineage, uh, we, we chant the names of six ancestors before Buddha. Uh, these are largely, you know, not largely, they're mythical figures uh, who maintain this sense of lineage going back essentially endlessly into time. But if we think of it in terms of a koan, who transmitted to Buddha, we're asking what what did the Buddha awaken to? What will we awaken to? And how do we understand the connection there? Is it passed down to us like a relic? that we keep in the family? Are we having the same experience? What would it mean to imagine that someone who lived in India 2,500 years ago or so is having the same experience that we're having? Is there anything such as a culturally and historically context-free experience. 
Do we believe enlightenment today is the same as enlightenment then? There's lots of metaphors about that. Here, I think they mention wiggling your toes in Maha Kashyapa's sandals. Or in some koans, they talk about your eyebrows entangled, you know, with the eyebrows of Bodhidharma and all the teachers that came before. But there's a certain way in which the notion of sameness partakes of this fantasy of a reality that you see, finally perceive directly with an immediacy that is ahistorical and timeless. Well, can there ever be such a thing? Kyogen says, one answer to the question of who transmitted to Shakyamuni is that innate Buddha mind transmitted Shakyamuni Buddha. Buddha mind is always available and practice is always available. Now that's a very interesting sentence. Buddha mind is always available and practice is always available. Buddha mind and practice are set up in the grammar of the sentence as if they were sort of both nouns, both describing things that are always available. But is Buddha mind a the kind of thing that practice is. And what would, can we mean by Buddha mind? Where is that? What is that? Is it a thing or is it a metaphor? See, I think it's one of those phrases that we get used to encountering in books like this. And we sort of nod our head and say, oh, yes, Buddha mind is always available. But what the hell are we actually talking about? Do we think of Buddha mind or Buddha nature as a potential that resides in each of us to become enlightened? What would that mean even? Does it exist in some timeless way in us or everybody? When I was growing up, I went to school and eventually I went to medical school and became a doctor. When I was six or seven years old, before I had ever thought about medical school, did I have innate doctor mind? Did I have an innate potential to become a doctor that was inside me like a genetic 
predisposition or capacity, just waiting to come out? Is Buddha mind a latent capacity, like the capacity to learn medicine or being endowed with perfect pitch? Is it something you already have, something you have to develop, or something you have to develop? Does it depend on conditions? Is it the same for everybody who's going to become a doctor? Practice is always available. What kind? What does that mean? Practice today is certainly not what practice was when Shakyamuni uh, was living. We don't practice the way he did. We don't practice the way they did in China or Japan. There are lots of resemblances. There are many things we do that bear a family resemblance. Practice of Zazen comes down to us in ways that are very complex and are both the same and different, what we think we're doing and how we do it. See, one way to try to naturalize demystify some of the kind of language about Buddha mind is to try to say that what we're doing is practicing in a way that allows us to simply be present in this moment. And the people have been doing that for centuries, each in their own way, each awakening, in a sense, to a very different moment and putting the experience of that awakening in very different religious and cultural contexts. But there's something very basic about sitting still and being quiet and just being present that has the potential in human beings to be very transformative. And then in some way or another, over thousands of years in many different cultures, the kinds of transformations that occur from being still and silent and present is something that we keep rediscovering and recreating and passing along one cultural container or another. And we use metaphors like Buddha mind to describe something of the 
nature of that transformation where the ordinary and the extraordinary suddenly uh, intermingle or the whole distinction between the ordinary and the extraordinary dissolves. And the ordinary, which we typically experience as insufficient or lacking or not special in some kind of way, suddenly we have that old duck-rabbit shift and it's experienced as lacking nothing, with nothing hidden just the most complete and special thing in the world. Nothing is changed. Everything is experienced differently. Somehow, that is a capacity in human beings that gets tapped in all sorts of different ways through all sorts of disciplines over and over and over again. But once we encounter that collision of the extraordinary and the ordinary, it's very hard to put into words, or maybe it's all too easy to put into metaphor, what, what is happening, and all sorts of descriptions of that multiply and eventually get concretized as if there was some new big cosmic mind that we're being getting in touch with. That's one kind of metaphor that people create around those experiences. Now, the poem about simplicity is written by uh, Sekito Kisen, who also wrote uh, The Identity of Absolute and Relative, the Sandakai, which we chant re uh, regularly. Puts this in a particular kind of uh, metaphorical context where the ordinariness of a simple grass hut, a lone hermit monk living this, you know, life of uh, utmost uh, poverty or simplicity is also described as the locus of the realization of uh, of Buddha mind. His, let me see if I can read a few lines here. He starts saying, I built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. Of course, it's going to turn out, he's going to say that what's in that grass hut is of the greatest possible value. 
people ask, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. To that original master, as there we get another metaphor for like Buddha mind. Who is the original master? Right? That's, that can be a kind of koan for you. Are you the original master? Do you feel like an original master? What's it supposed to feel like? Again, we get a sense that we're trying to talk about the immediacy of the present moment, which is has this simultaneously, the simultaneous characteristic of being timeless and impermanent. Just this. The eternal present, as people say, and the fleeting present. Somehow they're the one and the same. But when we talk about Buddha mind, or the original master, or our original face, we reify the experience of presence into a thing that we think we have to find or discover either deep inside ourselves or out there someplace or in some special state of consciousness. Depending on the metaphor we create, we go off looking for it in a different direction. But I think the, uh, the last two lines of this poem are really where he sums everything up and what is the crucial point for us to um, try to encounter ourselves. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. The undying person in the hut, the original master, Buddha mind, all these things that we met, uh, create as a metaphor or, and then sometimes concretize thinking it's a real thing someplace. Don't separate that abstraction that you've idealized and think is it from this skin bag, from this body, from this most imperfect relative thing, right? Don't separate the absolute from the relative, right? It's the same message as the Sandokai, but in much more concrete terms of a person living in a hut. In that hut as an ordinary old man. In that hut is the Buddha Dharma. 
same or different, right? Don't separate the original master from this old skin bag. It's all about this moment. It's all about the immediacy of now. It's the only place Buddha mind is to be found. <laughs>